Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If we've not met yet, my name is Luke. It's good to have you here. And if you brought a Bible or a device, we're going to be all over the Bible today. But I think the one passage you could probably park in and be safe in is Colossians 1. Colossians 1, if you're fast, you can stick a finger in Luke 15 as well. Um, And if you weren't here the last few weeks, we are one week deep into a series called the Apostles' Creed, which is a very old creed, and yet it's not old at all. It's still very cutting edge and might be one of the more revolutionary declarations we make to the world because it declares who we are as a people, as we unify, as we say something that has been said for generations across different cultures, across different times and different languages. We kind of are joining into a rally that's been going on for a while. And we saw last week that it's going to be a helpful creed for you and for me because it's going to help us stay aligned. We looked at alignment, not just aligned with each other, but aligned with the Word of God. It's going to help us be a little bit more symmetrical in how we see theology, how we see God. It's going to help us be very clear clear with each other, clear with the city, and it's going to help us be very consistent in our fluency, again, as we track with something that's been going on for a long time. And just as a reminder, I think it's important to say it again, this creed is a guide. This guide, it bows to Scripture, though. So what I mean by that is, is we're going to preach the second theme today, which is Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as Lord. But Listen, we don't preach a creed. We're going to preach from the the passages that kind of built that part of the creed up. It's going to follow after Scripture. It doesn't go in front of Scripture. And last week we saw what it meant to have God as Father and the implications for our lives. Today I'd like to look at Jesus, God the Son and our Lord. And that is what he is called in this part of our creed. He is God's only Son and Lord. Now, most of the Apostles' Creed is going to maybe follow after the work of Jesus. It's what people call a Christocentric creed, okay? But this is a part of the creed that focuses a little bit more on his identity, which was important to Jesus, which is why we'd see him talk about it from time to time. He would even stop his disciples at one point and say, hey, who do people say that I am, right? That's what he's going after. He's trying to show who he is. And this is a question that we still ask today. And I'll be honest, it might be the most important question any human being can have asked of them is, who do you say that Jesus is? And we have a lot of toothless answers to that today. I mean, it just depends on where you're coming from. Maybe he was just a teacher. Maybe he was just a good man. Maybe he was a prophet. Maybe he was a madman. Maybe he was a good man. Maybe he was a metaphor, a figment of your imagination. But here... With one clear voice, we're saying that he is God's son and that he is Lord. Now, last week, we spent a little bit of time on the sonship of Jesus because we talked about God being father. And it's really hard to talk about the father without at least pointing to the son a little bit. And we made the statement that the father and the son are both God and they are both one and how mysterious that is. And I'll just say it's okay that it's mysterious, The older I get, the okayer I become, with God holding mystery to himself. Now, as a younger man, not the case. As a younger man, I wanted all of my questions answered, and I wanted to be able to firmly measure and compartmentalize every aspect of God. So the Trinity, as a young man, the Trinity drove me nuts, right? Because it was one of those things that people would talk about, but we don't really see the physics of how it all works in the Bible. It's a piece of God's mystery that he holds to himself. 
So the scientist in me would wrestle with that. But I've learned over time that it's okay to have a God with mystery. In fact, without mystery, he's not really God at all. Without mystery, he would be smaller than us. We would be able to master him in the same way that we master biology or physics or grammar or something like that. But a God, a God that can be dissected down to the molecular level it just simply can't be divine at the same time. So God will maintain mystery to himself. And we see this talked about in the Bible, how God is uncontainable and how we can expect to see mystery and how that mystery is actually meant to provoke some level of trust and faith from you. We see this in Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Listen, God does not always express why he does what he does. How a hurricane will come here and not here. How or why a family over here could have 10 kids and a family over here can only have one or none kids. He, he does not show us or explain why he does what he does, but he also doesn't always explain how he does what he does. For instance, Jesus is the son of God, but he was not created. He was not made in the way we think of the words creation or, or making, meaning that Christmas does not start the story of Jesus. His story does not begin in a manger. Jesus is co-eternal with God the Spirit and God the Father in perfect communion, in perfect community forever. In fact, the Bible refers to Jesus in one key way, five places, by calling him the begotten son. There's a word that nobody uses anymore, to beget. What does it even mean? If you were to ask 100 people, what do you think the word beget means? They'd say, I don't know, begetting me a soda? Begetting out of the way? I'm not quite sure what begotten means. And listen, you're not supposed to know that unless you have studied in on a little bit and maybe become more familiar. So if you don't know what the word beget means, you're probably perfectly normal. But this is what C.S. Lewis describes as what it means to be begotten. And out of all of the reading I've done in my years, I think this is probably the clearest and best definition of it. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A, build, a beaver builds a dam. A man makes a statue. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. Maybe this is helpful for you. It is for me. The fact that you are made in the image of God, but Jesus is begotten of God, co-eternal with God. This is why we catch Jesus saying some things in John that would make sense under that definition, where he'll say something like, hey, if you want to see what the Father looks like, this guy, you're looking at him. If you see me, you see the Father. And then later on, he'll say, the Father and I are one. He's talking about his begottenness. So Jesus, in a familiar sense, in a, in a familial way, I guess, is our older brother. And that's what it means when he says he's the first born. He is of first rank. He is a co-heir. He is, in a, in a familial sense, a happy older brother. Unlike the older brother we see in the story of the prodigal father, right, and the prodigal son. I mean, that brother was a little bit more grumpy pants when his rebellious brother returned. Some of you know the story. If you don't know the story, in one breath, this is all it is. You have Two sons, one father, the younger one was rebellious, wanted all of the money, wanted to disown his family, wanted to leave his family. He went off 
wishing his family to be dead, spending all of his money on what he wanted in a way that his father did not raise him, which probably wounded the father more emotionally than it did economically. He runs himself into ruin with nothing left. He skulks back home, expecting for his father to lord it over him. Of course, his father doesn't. He races to him and embraces him with grace and with mercy. It's a beautiful picture for us, right? This is what we see. Now, in Luke 15, and go ahead and turn there if you're not there already, but in Luke 15, 29, we're going to see a little bit of what happens in this story at the very end. Because the father goes out and notices the older brother's not here. I've already addressed the younger brother. I've already clothed him. I've already loved him. I've already blessed him. But where is his brother? So he goes out. He says, but he answered his father. This is the older brother. Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, meaning the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found Christ, in a way, when you read this story, you're supposed to see this to a certain degree. Christ, in a way, is the better older brother. In the way that he would come and say, this many years, Father, I have served you. And I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you've given me far better than a goat, far better than a party with my friends. For you are always with me and all that is yours is mine. We're supposed to see this a little bit. Because Jesus is happy to share the Father. He's not like the older brother. He's happy to share the father's love with who? With rebels, with people who have been disobedient. He's happy to do so because he is the better older brother. He is the better son. And this has implications for you and me, the fact that Jesus is God the son and the better son. Can I just say that Jesus being the better older brother and the better son brings a freedom to you and me in the arenas of complaining and competition, okay? For instance, those moments where we feel kind of frozen in place by the anger we get when we see other people get something that we feel like we deserve. When we feel like we have to compete with other people to get the love that we really want. There's a Dutch theologian, Henry Nouwen. He says when he was reading this story, when he was looking intently at the older brother, he related to an aspect of him, as we all do. And he says this, it seems that Wherever my virtuous self is, there also is the resentful complainer. Here, in this passage, I am faced with my own true poverty. I'm totally unable to root out my resentments. They are so deeply anchored in the soil of my inner self that pulling that out seems like self-destruction. And this, this is precisely where the rebellious world is, far from Christ. It needs complaint. It actually needs competition just to survive. It's, it's only when someone is not satisfied in being fathered. So we'll talk about that vertical love, the fathering of God. It's only when someone is not satisfied by the love that God gives them that they cannot have a brother competing for them, for that love. They can't have it. They can't have, I mean, and, and that's how the story would have gone. The older brother would have been fine if the younger rebellious brother had never shown his face again. It, that would have been the perfect situation for the older brother. But Jesus is happy. He's happy to share the Father with you and with me. He's happy to celebrate our place in the family. And friend, this means we have everything. 
all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in the person of Christ, as it says in Ephesians, everything. Because we are able to say, Father, you are always with me. And everything that is yours is mine. But without this, without this total satisfaction in how God sees us, how the Father fathers us, without this total satisfaction, all we're left with is begging the world to love us. We're left with a life of walking around our whole lives saying, do you love me? Do you love me? We say it in our career. We say it to, to our kids. We say it to our spouse. We say it to our friends. Do you love me? Maybe you love me. Could you love me? And this is what the world will say. Yes, I will love you if. If you're enough. If you're good enough. If you're smart enough. If you're entrepreneurial enough, if you're wealthy enough, if you have enough connections, you have to be enough. And it's those ifs that just chain us. They, they put us in prison. So what we do is we live comparing and complaining. When we find ourselves competing for a love we cannot get, complaining when we see other people get something that we really want. But in our creed and in our Bible and in our faith, Jesus is the Father's only begotten Son the better son, the better older brother. And so we're free from comparison. You don't have to compare yourself with me and I don't have to compare myself with you. We don't have to compete with each other for the Father's love. Why? Because he is always with us. He is always with us. And we are always loved. This is easy. Seeing Jesus as the son of God, it, it feels like to me like it ministers more than it challenges. Maybe it's the same with you. But Lord... Lord, he calls himself Lord here, right? What does that mean? Lord of how much? How extensive, intrusive, how intrusive is the lordship of Jesus? Some of you might say he's Lord of everything, and that's right. That's the Sunday school answer. Had I started off by saying Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord, see, we know it, we know it. But what would it really look like if Jesus was 100% Lord in 100% of our life, 100% of the time? What would that change about how we walk today? Man, it would change quite a bit. You know, we are really good and skilled at people at maybe reaching back across the line and pulling something back to ourselves that at one time we had submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Maybe when you were born again, you said you could have it all. But what we're good at is kind of sniffing out, I think I really want that back. And so we'll reach over and we'll grab it and we'll pull it back. And this is why we figure in our head, this is why we do this. Because we think that if we were just 72% submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, 86.3% submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, that in some way our life would be better than if we were 100% submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. This is what Adam thought. Right? 100% is too much. We could have better. Jesus can be Lord of much. Jesus can be Lord of most, but he cannot be Lord of all. But what right does he even have to be Lord in our life? Right? And this is where Colossians can be helpful for us. So if you have a Bible, this is the mega passage that I think we could stand on, and it lifts most of the weight for today. And by the way, Colossians 1, uh, Jake led you through Hebrews 1 earlier. Here's a quick way. If you have a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knock on your door, just remember this. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. That's where you stay because it talks about the divinity and the grandeur of Jesus. That's all you got to remember. John, Hebrews, Colossians 1, and you'll be fine. That's for free. Okay, 
Colossians 1 verse 15. Paul says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. And that preeminence is the theme of the whole book, by the way. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The theme of this passage, which is the theme of the book of Colossians, really, is Jesus is the preeminent in first rank. When it says firstborn, it means first in rank, the the heaviest weight familially. Jesus is preeminent in a first rank over all of creation. He is the preeminent in first rank over all of his church, which means he's the preeminent first rank head of our lives. So the big question is, is if I only bow my knee in some select areas and he is only Lord in some select areas, what does that mean for me? What does that mean to be partially submitted? You know, there's a metaphor I've heard, which is somewhat helpful, not always helpful, but it's if you could imagine going to a car dealership and you already know what make, model, year car you want, which kind of reduces a big, a big dealership down to like one row of cars, right? So you kind of know what row of cars you need to be on. And as you're walking up and down, you're, you're becoming increasingly aware of how much they cost, just the cost of an automobile. So what do we do? We start shaving down the options. Is it really important that you have a spray and bed liner, right? That's what's going through our head. The answer to that is yes, by the way. Never get a truck without a spray and bed liner. But, but, but if, if you could shave that off, what about the air-conditioned seats? We live in East Tennessee. Do you need it or not, right? It just depends on who you talk to. What about uh, XM radio? What we do is we, if we want to save the money we're spending, we start carving out the options. And if we just want to get the basic model, we're all the way down to, I don't even need power locks. I don't even need power. I just want to crank my window down and crank my window up. Some of you are like, what is he doing with his arm? There was a day (laughs) where you did not push a button. And what we look for is the basic model. Listen, when it comes to the expense of lordship in our lives, sometimes we just say, nah, I just don't want to go to hell. I just want the basic model. That's all I want. Jesus doesn't need to be my Lord, just an affiliation, a name, an idea that I co-opt into my life to round out the the, the sharp edges. So we will let Jesus be Lord of our soul, but we will maintain authority over our own possessions, our own goals, our own imaginations, our own careers, our own everything. Friends, this is a good example, by the way, of how a creed can form us. This is a good example of how a creed can actually change us into a disciple that lives in a totally different kingdom, which is valuable. I mean, Christianity is not just about knowing and agreeing with the right facts. James actually goes pretty deep into the fact that even demons are able to pull that off. Christianity, in its essence, is something very different. It is a change in citizenship. It's actually a change in ownership. You could almost look at salvation, in a way, as a title transfer. You're everything. You sign over, you're everything. You get a new passport because you're in a new kingdom now. The new flag, a new king, a new economy. 
new laws, new physics in this new land, a new culture, a new family, new tradition, new goals, new timeline. Nothing stays the same and everything changes. Everything changes. There's just no basic model in Christianity. He has it all. He is Lord of all. The New Testament has no grid of understanding lordship being partial, of lordship being even the majority of your life. It only understands Jesus being Lord of every aspect of your life. You know, in our men's Bible study on Thursday morning, I, I, I told the guys that when I turned 15 and I went to it, I think I was 15, I might have been 14, it all squinches together. I was this big, right? And I ate a lot of food. I was that age, I ate a lot of food. Went to a church camp and I remember there being a skit. The acting was questionable, but it got, it got the job done. It scared me. It scared me to death because I thought I was going to hell. So I made a firm decision at the age of 15 to not go to hell. That's it. I wanted Jesus to do one thing and one thing only, not be my Lord, but to be my Savior, to save, to save me, to rescue me. Now, my life changed in small degrees after that day, mostly meaning my schedule. My Wednesday and Sunday nights were now eat up. My Sunday mornings were now eat up. But I still maintained ownership over everything. I was still the authority. I would take my dreams and my decisions, my purchases, my friends, my mouth. My, I, I, I try to baptize it all. I try to glue some Christian words to it. But I was still owning everything. I was still doing whatever I wanted to do. It wouldn't be until I was 21 that I submitted everything and transferred title. My hopes, my dreams, my career, my relationships, my mouth, my eyes, my body, my everything. Some of you have similar stories. I know this because we've had talks about it. I know this because it also produces the question, Luke, if that's true for me, like it seems to be true for you, when did I become a Christian? Was it when I was 14 or 15? Was it when I was nine or 10? When it, was it when I first heard the gospel? Or was it when I was like in my 20s and I kind of was able to get my arms around what it would really cost? When was it? It's hard to say, right? It's hard to say. It's not always very clear. This I will say is clear. Until someone is willing to submit everything to the Lord, they cannot be saved. That I know is the physics of it until you're at least willing to do it. Now, we don't know at a young age what that might mean. It might be in increasing degrees that we see areas of our life that we have not totally submitted, right? So sometimes a childlike faith is just that. We see, oh, I need to give my life, and we don't know all of what that will play out over the years. But until you are at least willing to bow the knee to the total lordship of Jesus, you cannot be saved. Saving faith is a God-enabled and unreserved trust in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for you and me. And it involves far more than just intellectually understanding the gospel. The essence of it is dependence and submission. That's the essence of it all. It involves surrendering to the authority of Christ with an attitude that is willing to give everything. Willing to obey him as one's new master in every single area of your life. Paul told the Corinthian church this in 2 Corinthians 5. And he died for all, meaning Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. No longer live for themselves. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
who do people say that I am, is an important question. If the answer is Lord, then there is no salvation without submission. I really need you to hear this. There's no salvation without submission. You might be living a token Christian life, a nominal Christian life, if there is such a thing, a symbolic Christian life. East Tennessee is full of this. It's the primary reason we wanted to plant a church here because we knew we would be swimming in a sea of properly behaved cultural religiosity. If you are unwilling to submit everything to Christ, the gospel simply has not won your heart yet. It hasn't. A gospel-invaded heart, a gospel-ruined heart, it, it gives us open hands and bent knees. It creates forward motion in us. Anything else, you might have made some decisions intellectually based on some facts that you heard. You might have even had an emotional moment, but the gospel has not wrecked you yet. But it does offer some pretty hard questions for us, a passage like this, a creed like this, one of them being, if we must bow to Jesus to be Lord in order to become a Christian, does he need to stay Lord for us to stay a Christian? Listen, I'm only asking these questions because you do. Hebrews 3, 14 says something that scares a lot of people. The author of Hebrews says this, for we have come to share in Christ if, there's a condition on there, There's a condition. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, all the way to the end. Well, what if we don't? What if we don't? What if we fail? Has that scared the pants off a few of you before? What if we fail at that? Here's two truths we can really bank on. One, God enables all Christians to persevere to the end. If you are in Christ, if you have Christ in you, and you have had a saving interaction with God, then he will carry, he will hold you. The Bible says he will keep you to the very end, okay? Certainly we have thin seasons, of course, where we doubt God, where we have questions. Maybe we struggle with rebellion in our heart. We have thin seasons for sure, but genuine believers, genuine believers cannot totally fall away from the faith, but continue in the faith all the way to the end as they are eternally saved. God keeps us. You can have that confidence The confidence that not even your own rebellion is big enough to keep God's love from you. That's why we read that in Romans. Not height, nor depth, not angels, not this crazy thing, not that crazy thing. Not even your bad behavior, not even your bad month, not even your bad season can keep God's love from you. That's truth number one. Truth number two, a Christian life is a life of increasing lordship. Especially in the routes of submission, dependence, repentance, That's just the inevitable fruit of living a Christian life. It's the inevitable fruit of being rescued, of having the Holy Spirit change you from the inside out, that we would bear fruit. And this is how it works. The more you grow in your joy of the Lord, the more the light starts to permeate your life. And the brighter the light gets, the more trash you see. The more opportunity you have to take that and say, Lord, this is something that I've actually been God over. I've been king over this. I've been in sin over this. I've said, as an autonomous person, I am Lord of this part of my life, but I'm giving it to you. I'm repenting, I'm submitting, and I'm moving forward. And the more you do that, what happens? The more you enjoy Jesus. (laughs) And then the more you enjoy Jesus, the more light you see. And the more light you see, the more dirt you see. It's, It's this beautiful picture of the holier we get, the the, the closer we become with Christ, the more we see the depth of the sin in our life. The more we keep giving, the more he keeps taking. 
It's beautiful. We rinse, we repeat, it never stops. But what about people who once called Jesus Lord and now do not? What about those who stop rinsing and repeating? Those who don't bear any more fruits? Again, listen, the only reason I'd spend time on a question like this is just because of the trend that, that's, that's suddenly popular, which isn't new at all. Deconstruction is what we call it. We used to call it apostasy. <laughs> and the Puritans would call it apostasy. We call it deconstruction. It's, it's largely the same thing. Where we pull, instead of renovating a kitchen, we pull it down to the studs, we pull all the plumbing out, and we just kind of walk away and leave it. We, we just walk away. We tear everything down, and we just say, I don't believe in Jesus. I am no longer a Christian. How, how are you and I supposed to interact with that? As we see friends do that. We see family do that. You know, there is a tension in the New Testament when it comes to this, one of warning and comfort at the same time. We've current, to some degree, have already looked at it. But on one hand, God comforts genuine believers that we will persevere to the end. On the other hand, God warns that he will not finally save us if we do not persevere in the faith. Both those are true at the same time. Where the Bible's not the Bible. Both those are true at the same time. Paul says to the Corinthian church, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if, there's that condition again, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, right? Some who seem to be genuine are only superficially attached to the community of Christ and eventually demonstrate with their lives that they were never genuine Christians at all. This is not a 2023 issue, by the way. This is something that stretches all the way back to the beginning of the church. First John, John would speak to it, where he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. This is how I think it probably worked out back then, because this is how I see it working out today, too. When somebody does do that, we usually think in our mind, that guy, though? That gal, you're telling me that they were never a Christian? It was shocking enough for John to write on it. And if you look at the parable of the soils, the various soils, there would be some that was immediately taken up off of the road, some that kind of grew up in rockier soil, and then some that grew up with thorns around it. And then there was the fourth, which is the fertile soil that, that, that would bear fruit. But those middle two, the thorns and the rockier soil, it would have looked like from the outside that there was growth for a while. And then there wasn't. This is what we're seeing in these passages. God uses this warning as a means to persuade genuine Christians to persevere in the faith. This is what this means. If you claim to be a Christian, you must be diligent to confirm your calling and election. These are Peter words, not mine. You need to be diligent to confirm your calling and election by cultivating your faith, cultivating your walk, your relationships, Cultivating self-control, knowledge, love, brotherly affection. There is no question that God is able to keep us who are born again to the very end. If you enjoy God, if you call him Lord, if you're cultivating your walk, then there's no need for anxiety in your life. You shouldn't have a, a salvation anxiety. And, and I think this is important to maybe just... Aim at for one second, because I have had Christians, and not a few, come up and say, I don't know if I'm really saved. I'm not quite sure. 
So I run through a checklist. It's a mental one. I don't keep it in my pocket. But it's like, hey, do you love Jesus? Yes. Okay. Do you live a life where you just kind of submit everything to him and he's Lord of everything? Yes, I do. All right, we're looking good so far. Do you repent? Yes, I do. As I ask these basic questions, it's just box check, box check, box check. And at that point, I'm able to say, listen, I, I think you're, it sounds to me like you're a Christian, bud. It sounds to me like you're a Christian. However, there might be a place of repentance in you because you don't believe that God can keep you. There's an anxiety in you that says God is strong for others, but he's not strong for me. That's not as much just an affliction. That's a point of unbelief. But for those of us who do not submit and cultivate, who do not enjoy, who do not love, under what claim do you call salvation yours? Honestly. If Jesus is not Lord, then who is? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Because this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody. Do you see how Jesus as Lord is more than just three words in a creed? Do you see why it's so revolutionary, so confrontational, so intrusive? And it has some radical implications for us. Primarily, if Jesus is Lord, friend, you are not. I am not. I mean, if salvation does one thing, it turns a bunch of owners into stewards really quick. Because you don't own your life anymore. Or your finances or your kids. You're stewards. You manage them, not for your glory. You manage everything for the glory of God. It, cha it changes our posture. And here's the thing, the world's going to hate that. Our world, if anything, our culture, our society, if anything, it applauds you becoming autonomous, you becoming king, you becoming authority, you becoming Lord. It applauds that. I mean, we're becoming increasingly more distrustful of authorities in our life, external ones. Right? We're, we're not, we don't trust the school boards anymore. We don't trust the medical space anymore, our politicians anymore, our police force, our pastors, our parents. We don't trust authorities anymore. And we swim in this culture where Basically, people say, you shouldn't. You are your own God. You define your own truth. You define your own path. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they are wrong and you are right. Listen, Paul says something very different. He says, do not conform to the pattern that we see in the world of autonomy and claiming single lordship, but be transformed with a renewed mind, a submitted renewed mind. I'd say probably another implication this might be more of a contemporary one, I'm not quite sure yet, is that the gospel does not crash into obedience and lordship. It agrees with it. And this is what I mean by that. Oftentimes when people are faced with matters of obedience in their Christian walk, you'll hear something from time to time that says, I don't want to do that because my motivations aren't good. I don't want to be a legalist. I'm a, I'm a person of grace. I believe in the gospel. Right? So when our motivations are not so gospel-infused, we sometimes will pit obedience against the gospel. But friends, let me tell you something. When you obey Jesus, you are in fact loving Jesus, even if you don't feel like doing what he has laid down before you. The gospel does not avoid obedience. It brings a passion for it because you now you're free to do it. When we planted this church, our hope was and is to declare and demonstrate a gospel that ruins legalism. The gospel is good news for the younger brother 
who's rebellious and licentious. The gospel is also good news for the older brother who is self-righteous and follows all the rules trying to attempt to get the same love from the father. The gospel is the gospel for both. We're rescued from our unrighteousness. We're rescued from our self-righteousness. And the gospel states that we are free to walk in the shape of Jesus. And this is why. We're free to obey. You are totally free to obey. Right? 